Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Maybe may be seated. Well, it's good to see you today. We're continuing on in our series in Matthew. We're in Matthew 6, 1 through 18 today. And, uh, you know, just as I was reading this passage, I was thinking about good movies and, and how often we judge good movies based on how good the acting is. We as the audience want to forget what's real and be brought into an entirely different world, a whole new reality. We don't necessarily care that Tom Hanks was not really stranded on an island, right? We just care about how he made us think he was on an abandoned island. We don't really care all too much that Romeo and Juliet's kiss on stage was entirely fake and loveless. We only care whether or not the actors and actresses made us think the kiss was real. This is what we refer to when we talk about performance. It describes how someone acts externally, regardless of what's real or true on the inside. Good acting makes for a good performance, right? Good acting makes for a good performance. And yet... While an excellent performance on stage or on the big screen is enjoyable and fun, in life, when we do it, in, in the setting of our relationships and our walk with God and our godliness, when we do it, it can be deadly. Since the fall, people have had the unfortunate tendency to turn their spirituality into a performance, into an act. Ask a person how they know they are right with God. And you often hear a variety of answers. I give loads of money to philanthropic causes. I pray before every meal. I go to church on all the important holidays. I avoid all the major sins, and I have given up certain things so that I can feel closer to God. And we all have heard these kind of answers when we talk about how do you know that you're right with God. And we are not surprised when the world gives us those kinds of answers. But it still might be surprising for you to hear that we bring that into the church. We, even as Christians, bring that kind of performance-based religiosity into our walk with God. Whenever my main concern becomes what other people think about my prayer, my Bible study lesson, my sermon, my tithing, my singing, my godliness, my fasting, my evangelistic gifting my commitment to volunteering, then you can bet that what you're witnessing is a well-rehearsed performance that is meant to be seen, evaluated, appreciated, and (laughs) applauded. It's meant to be seen by you when my main concern is what you think about my righteous acts. In contrast to this kind of thinking, Jesus proclaims that a flourishing life with God in the kingdom is one that is real. It's not a performance. It's not an act. It's not meant to be lived out before a massive audience full of eyes watching you and and appreciating and admiring the way that you walk with God. Instead, it is meant to be a godliness that is reserved for an audience of one, God himself. 
Jesus calls his people to an authentic relationship with their heavenly Father who sees their private acts of worship. So as we begin to jump into Matthew 6, 1 through 18, we're considering how Jesus is continuing this understanding of righteousness. He's discussing this righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He wants us to understand what that looks like. In the last section that we walk through, that really long section on, you have heard it said, but I say to you, chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, Jesus demonstrated what it means to righteously obey God from the heart by loving him and by loving others, not just following woodenly the form of the law, but actually following the spirit of the law, what God intended by the law. Well, now in this section, Jesus turns to show us how to righteously worship God from the heart in sincerity and in truth. So not just obedience, but worship as well. As we get to the passage that Moy just read in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, we see that it serves as a headliner for the next several verses. If you want to sum up Matthew 6, 1 through 18, you simply need to read Matthew 6, 1. Because what Jesus says here covers everything he says in the next 18 verses. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now this verse explains that Jesus' primary concern at this point is warning his people against the tendency of spiritual performance or an external religiosity that seeks praise from people, that wants acknowledgement and admiration. The truth that God's people, us, struggle with the constant urge to do performance-based religiosity is seen in Jesus' present tense imperative. Beware. He's not speaking to non-believers here. He's speaking to people in the kingdom. Beware of practicing your righteousness. That means today. That means in the next moment. Whenever the present is, that is when you are to beware of this dangerous tendency of living your religiosity in front of people. Because, my friends, it comes naturally to us. It doesn't matter how long we've walked with God. It doesn't matter how long we have been saved, how long ago it was that we joined a church. It doesn't matter how often we fight against the temptation. The reality is we have a terrible tendency to drift back into performance. When this danger is neglected, when we're not aware of it, when when we're not presently being aware of it, teaching can become an exhibition of one's Bible knowledge. Service can become a sad show to flaunt one's selflessness. Worship can become a concert to showcase one's skill. Bowing and praying and fasting can be all things meant to be seen by all these religious people around us and for them to admire how holy and righteous we are. My friends, no one is exempt from this, including myself. So in the end, righteous worship involves having the right motivations of the heart, just as obedience involves having the right heart to love God. Now, we all have mixed motives when we worship, whether we know it or not. 
But I think in knowing that we have mixed, motion, mixed motives in serving and worshiping and living out our righteousness, I don't think we should become complacent in that fact. I think we need to know it and do everything we can to increasingly see and center our, our uh, relationship to be authentic. Increasingly see our love for God becoming authentic. Why we do what we do? Because of who we love. The danger of performance-motivated worship, this is the real danger in it, is, is that we will lose a real re- reward. Fake pseudo-righteousness means the loss of God's real re- reward for our lives. Jesus warns that if we practice our righteousness before people to be seen by them, here's what he says, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. What's the reward he's talking about? If you go back to the Beatitudes, the reward for those who desire real righteousness is satisfaction with God. Remember, it says that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So it's real satisfaction. So Jesus isn't just speaking of of losing that pejorative image that we have in our minds, of losing jewels in the crown. He's not talking about every time you do this, God plucks out one of your jewels from the crown. In fact, the fact that we have that image is offensive. Okay? What he's talking about is that when we dip into performance-based religiosity, it costs us much more than we think it does. Namely, it costs us a satisfying, authentic relationship with God. It's no coincidence that the moment that we begin performing, the moment we begin being focused on what other people think of our righteousness, that we begin to lose private joy with the Lord. Those secret times in the closet where we're reading the Bible and praying become less enjoyable. Those long, slow walks in the morning where we're meditating on God become more of a hassle because no one's watching. And so we lose satisfaction with God and we end up continuing to perform, thinking that more people that see my righteousness, the more people that understand how godly I am, the more people who applaud me, surely that will satisfy. And it, in the end, leaves us completely hungry until we are starved because only private, personal, authentic, real righteousness lived before God alone can satisfy. Nothing else can. I think Jesus' warning is consistent with what God said in 1 Samuel 16, 7. Remember what he says there to Samuel? For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the what? The outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. Meaning, regardless of what other people see, God sees the state of your heart. Regardless of how people hear your prayers, regardless of how people see your tithing, regardless of all of that, God sees not as man sees. God sees the heart. He sees the motivations. He sees the desires. He sees the cravings. He sees the self-glorification. He sees it all. God desires for us to live righteous lives, not just externally, but from hearts motivated to worship Him. Now, in the next several verses, this whole section works just like the last section did. Jesus gives a statement, and then He unpacks that, giving real-life examples. He gives three examples how to practice, of, of practicing 
private piety, uh, private godliness. He includes three basic ways that righteousness was practiced in those days. Giving, praying, and fasting. And again, I I think just like we said last week, these aren't the only three ways that we can apply Jesus' principle. I think it applies to serving, singing, evangelizing, going on mission trips, studying the Bible, and everything else that we do, quote-unquote, for God. Whenever we, whatever we say we do for God must be done for God, sincerely, authentically, truly, or else it is public showboatsmanship. Just trying to get the applause of men. So Jesus' first example deals with giving alms or charity. Here's what he says. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, almsgiving was a righteous act. It was commanded by God in Deuteronomy 15. And so Jesus is not speaking against it, saying, Hey, I don't want you to give. In fact, he says, when you give. There's an implication that you will give. When you give. However, when practiced in hypocrisy, giving becomes a, a display of one's own generosity. But even more plainly and more dangerously, it becomes glory theft. Glory theft. Whereas, wherein we are seeking to steal away the glory That belongs to God. The giver gets the glory, not the God who motivates the giver. Not the God who has given so the giver can give. That's not unique to Jesus' day, is it? We see it in our day. Throughout history, giving charity has become the ultimate proof of righteousness. Of goodness. I mean, think about it. Every time a brand new election comes around, what do you hear in Every politician, whichever side they're on, what do you hear in every commercial? How much they've given. How much they have given to philanthropy. How much they've donated. It's, it's a way to show why they're electable, why they are, are, are popular. Celebrities taking pictures and, and posting them on Facebook to show that they're not all about the fame, but they want to tell their contingency of people who made them famous that they're not all about the fame by taking the picture and putting it on social media so everybody knows my friends as good and noble as it is to help hurting people even when it's done with the wrong motives jesus says that his people kingdom citizens are ultimately to prize secret generosity we are not to give in that same way he tells us to sound no trumpet. Instead, we are to give so that even our left hand, I had to practice that, make sure I got the right hand, so that even our left hand doesn't know what our right hand is doing. Not that dumb, but still. I think practically this means to give in such a way that doesn't draw attention to what we've done. We should not be broadcasting how much we tithe. We shouldn't be broadcasting how much we give to serving and 
how much time we give, right? Oh, you just don't understand the hours I've spent in this place helping people. We shouldn't be broadcasting that kind of stuff. We shouldn't be broadcasting how much we do for our families and friends. I mean, there's a real, there's a real motive testing here. Do we give to get our, get our name on a plaque, on a brick, on a list, or on a memorial? Do we give so that we can have such an impressive tax write-off that it's worth hanging on the fridge? Do we give so that, I don't know how many of you have been in the Panda Express, but man, this is really hard to practice at Panda Express. You go in to order lunch, they're like, would you like to donate to the Children's Cancer Society? And you're like, sure. And they're like, ding, 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 ding. They ring the bell. And everybody goes, thank you. And I'm like, yeah. And what's more awkward is when the guy in front of you does it, they ring the bell for him. You don't really want to do it because he did it last time. And they're just looking at you with their hand over the bell and everybody else is. And now you just want to give so that everybody hears the bell. I mean, my friends, we are not above that kind of giving. We do that, do we not? And Jesus says kingdom citizens are not to do that. Publicized, trumpeted giving brings about an immediate but temporary reward. Jesus says that those who sound the trumpet when they give have received. That's a perfect tense. Have received their reward. This means that if one does something for the recognition of men, that's all they get. Nothing for, no further reward awaits them. It's been paid in full. Completely over with. And what's sad is that when we live so much for men's applause, we forget that our contribution is soon forgotten. The name on the plaque, the name on the brick, soon somebody said, who was that again? You know, um, living in the Southern Baptist Church where everybody donated pews and the names are on the pews, it's like, I don't, I don't think I ever knew them. That was a hundred years ago. Men have fickle and temporary and faulty memories and they will forget what you have done. It doesn't matter how many, pre- how many sermons I preach, if I ever get to write books in this church, if I ever get to do anything in this church, one year after I'm dead, the world moves on. They forget. And yet, when we remember that it's not to be done for the applause of men, we remember that there is one who never forgets. There is one who sees all, and his glory never fades. And your Father who sees in secret, will, that's a promise, will reward you. As a pastor, I've had the joy of seeing many of you uh, do secret giving. I've had the privilege of being the mediator between hurting people and, and wealthy benefactors who see the need, but they don't want this person to know that they're giving. And so they say, hey, can you can you broker this in a way so that nobody knows what's happening? We just want to give to this person. And so they, they do. And it's been amazing to see how many people in this church are secret givers. And you would never know what they've done. You may never know how much they've given. You may never know all the people they've helped. And yet, the evidence of their giving is an invisible smile of God that will be there for all eternity. Not because of what they've done but because their father remembers what he has done through them. Now, second, 
Jesus applies the same principle to sincere righteousness, of sincere righteousness to uh, prayer. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who, is in se- who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words, literally their babble. Do not be like them, for your Father knows, that, knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, it's a twofold warning. Number one, don't pray like hypocrites, and don't pray like Gentiles. That's second. According to Jesus, hypocrites pray in the same way they give, to be seen by others. And when a person prays simply so that people will hear, so that people will be impressed, that's as far as the reward goes. Such prayer goes no further than men's ears. That is a prayer that God chooses not to hear. As for the Gentiles, they believe that if they just came across the right magical incantation, the right, the right form of, of syntax and the right bit of mumbling, maybe they can manipulate their God into giving them what they wanted. It was like a spell. Say this spell, say it in this language, and say it over and over and over and over and over, and then God might give you what you want, even if what you said was nonsense. Jesus says not to pray like that. It's one thing to persevere in a particular prayer request, praying for it again and again. And it's quite another thing to think that your chanting is going to manipulate God's hand to give you what you want. God is not manipulated by long prayers. And he is not hindered by short prayers. In his sovereignty, he knows what you need before you even ask. Let's just dissect this a little bit. The prayer of the hypocrites is man-centered. Well, the prayers of the Gentiles implies that they could manipulate. They, they're not dependent on the gods. In fact, the gods answering them is dependent on their words. So when Jesus gets to his prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer in verses 19 through 13, he addresses both of these problems. Instead of being man-centered in our prayers, God, Jesus wants us to be God-centered. Instead of thinking we can manipulate God and that his answer to our prayer depends on our words, he wants us to pray in complete dependence upon him. A God-centered prayer sounds like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Completely God-centered. First, Jesus tells us to pray to our Father. We come to him not as a reluctant God. We come to him not as a force that needs to be manipulated. We come to him as children coming to their dad, asking for daddy in the middle of the night for a glass of water. Second, we pray that his name will be hallowed. That means that his name will be made holy, that it will be be made renowned in earth. It's a prayer for God's name to be worshipped in the world, to be set apart from all other names, to be honored above all else. And then he tells us to pray for God's kingdom to come. And the kingdom, as Jesus defines it here, is God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Literally, God, make this place so in line with your will that it looks just like heaven. 
that everybody does exactly what you say. Now, all three points about this truly righteous prayer draw us away from performance. When we speak about God and we speak to God, we're not speaking to a massive audience. We're speaking to our Father. When we pray for His name to be made holy in the earth, we, start think, we stop thinking about making our name great. When we pray for His kingdom to come, we stop trying to build our own kingdoms. You see how this works. It shifts us away from self and to God. A God-dependent prayer, on the other hand, sounds like this. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Notice that these specific prayer requests are very brief. They're short. Give us bread, God. Forgive our sins. They're not long-winded, rambling prayers that Jesus warned about in the Gentile-type praying. In the way that Jesus prays, he in no way implies manipulation. Instead, these requests communicate absolute dependence. It's not as if our praying, the right words, will magically move God to an, an, to an answer. Instead, like when we pray for things like food, God doesn't give us food because we magi- magically hit a stream of right words, a syntax of right words, or we hit the right incantation. God gives us food when we pray because we have humbled ourselves to come to Him to pray, to ask for it. It's about dependence, not manipulation. Same can be said about forgiveness and deliverance from temptation. And so, instead of praying in such a manner that puts us at center stage, we're to pray in such a way that makes God's name glorified. Instead of thinking that our answer, that our prayers uh, make our our. Uh, contin- uh, that, our, that God's answers to our prayers are contingent on how we pray, we are to pray knowing that whatever we say, God already knows he is more concerned with how we are humbling ourselves before him to ask him for what we need. And so, my friends, without this kind of centrality of, on God, without this humble dependence, our prayers are ineffectually unrighteous. Have you ever thought that? God, uh, without a God-centered dependence. Our prayers are ineffectual and reach nothing more than a human audience. Furthermore, while verses 14 and 15 initially sound like a parenthetical statement, they do kind of seem like a a rabbit trail. They are still connected with this idea of real righteousness lived before God. Jesus stops the prayer and he simply says this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Here's the simple connection. Just as it's hypocritical to sound a trumpet so that people will see me give, and just as hypocritical for me to pray so that people will hear, it is also hypocritical for me to pray for God to forgive my sins and not forgive others their sins against me. That's hypocrisy. Living in unforgiveness toward other people and praying for God's forgiveness over our own lives is asking for something that we are unwilling to give others. We're asking God to be gracious without wanting to give that grace. 
It's like commentator Adolf Slater once said, there is no serious prayer for forgiveness except on the lips of a forgiver. No serious prayer of forgiveness except on the lips of a forgiver. Real righteousness is unhypocritical. It leads us to pray that the same grace that we have received in forgiveness, that, will be, that, that, that same grace will be given to others also, that they will taste and see the sweetness that we have seen through our own forgiveness and through our own grace. I don't think what Jesus is saying here in telling us to forgive others is to simply pretend that the wrongs that were done against us didn't happen. I think what he's telling us to do is to simply give over to God the wrong, the hurt, the pain. I think what he's asking us to do is to take up a desire to see people taste and see that, God's good, that God is good and that he has mercy for them. I think that's what it means to forgive. It is absolutely possible to continue in your, in your conviction that what someone has done to you was wrong, and yet to desire that they experience the sweetness of God's mercy and forgiveness, just as you have. That's what forgiveness looks like. So I think when we pray in real righteousness, in a truly sincere, righteous prayer, we pray for God to give that grace and forgiveness to others as well. Now we have a third and final illustration of piety of godliness, and that's of fasting. We Texans don't like to talk about fasting, okay? But we need to do it anyway because it's in the Bible. So if you need a support group, we have a fasting support group, and we can, uh, we can start you off step by step. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, literally, and, and wash your face. Literally, take a shower and put on some deodorant, okay? That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. Now, very simple. What was happening in those days when people fasted, they looked dirty, they looked disheveled, they chose not to shave. They, wa- they walked around all sickly and scrawny and tired, and they wanted everybody to go, oh, Look at that guy. Wow. Wish I could be like that. Who's up for a Big Mac? So my friends, Jesus says, don't do that. I'm, up, I'm with you. Jesus says, don't do that. When you fast, be happy about it. My friends, have you ever thought about what fasting is? When we give up things to enjoy God more, it's not something to flaunt for people's pity or for their admiration to that end. If we have to go on endlessly about what we've given up and how hard it's been to give up, have we really given it up? Have we really given it up? Fasting, whether it's from technology, from a mill or a few mills, from TV, from social media, or from anything else is nothing but a joyful exercise that when it's observed in true righteousness, it allows you to enjoy God even more. John Piper says that fasting in Jesus's way of seeing things is a hunger for God or it is worse than nothing. As Jesus teaches it, fasting is an intensely Godward act. And because it is a Godward act, it must be done before God alone and not before the eyes of men. Now, here's my last point, the conclusion. 
Jesus' words about real righteousness in this passage whisper the hope of the gospel. The phrase, your father, our father, is repeated at least 10 times in 18 verses. Now, when you find that many times of repetition in that few verses, Jesus wants you to see the point. We have a God who is our father. He wants us to understand that true righteousness is living in a real relationship with a real loving father. He decries performance-based religion because we're not performers. We're sons and daughters. We're children of God. This is the beauty of justification by faith alone and not by works. What's the beauty of this doctrine? Justification by faith alone means that I do not have to make my righteousness a performance, not even before God. Performance is over. It is finished. God has seen all he needed to see. Not in me, but in Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice satisfied. Jesus' actions satisfied. Jesus' display of godliness satisfied. Jesus' display of righteousness satisfied. Jesus' sacrificial atonement satisfied. Jesus' public crucifixion on Golgotha, his public humiliation, and his world-renowned resurrection satisfied. There is now no condemnation for me regardless of how I perform. And so now... I have been set free to not perform, but to enjoy a sincere, righteous, real relationship with my God. The gospel tells us that the need to perform has died at the cross. My friends, you may be here performing a religious duty. You may be here because you know that church attendance is important to be godly. You may be here because you haven't gotten any prayers in today and this is the best way to come and get that done. My friends, God in His grace sent His Son who lived a perfect life. He didn't act. He was sincere. He was real. He died for you. And then he rose again. And because of his perfect life, death, and resurrection, those who trust in him have now become sons and daughters. And now the pressure to perform before God or anyone else has gone away and been lifted from us. And we who have been raised to a new life with Christ have been set free to live joyfully and sincerely before our Heavenly Father who sees all things. So my friends, don't perform. Don't perform. Don't act. Enjoy the relationship that God has given you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we have been set free from performance. It's no longer about what people think about us, and it's never really been about that anyway. And Father, now we know what you think of us, Father. Even with all of our sins and our weaknesses and our struggles and our shame, Father, you think of us as you think of your Son. God, you look at us through your Son and you see us as perfect. 
God, we know you know about our flaws. We know you know about our weaknesses. And yet, Father, you choose to hold no condemnation against us because Jesus paid for it in his blood. And so now, Father, I pray that we will put down the mask, that we'll stop the stage act, that we'll stop performing, and that we will just enter into a real life relationship with you. And that, Father, we will enjoy you as our daddy, as our Abba. Because, Father, you're not the critic sitting behind there, but, but sitting behind some kind of desk critiquing the way we've lived. You're a Father who wants us to come with our baggage, with our pains, with our struggles, with our nightmares. You want us to sit on your lap, to cry on your chest, to be homesick for you, and to live before you alone. And you are pleased with us, not because of how we've performed, but because of how Jesus died and rose again. And you're pleased with our faith. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.